very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Welcome to Veritas. I'm Mel Fabregas, and I'm so glad you're joining us tonight for our season premiere, season seven. And I'm delighted, really delighted to once again have my good friend Cliff High. But this time, finally, after so many years of hiding behind the computer screen, he is with us. And you'll be able to see him right now. So, without further ado, I'd like to welcome my friend Cliff High. Cliff, welcome to Veritas. Thank you very much, Mel. And congratulations on seven years. Oh, thank you very much. And it's such a pleasure. Last year we had you on the season premiere, and now we're doing it again You've always been with us from day one. And first question I have for you, why are you uncovering your face now? It no longer matters. The issue that I had was uh, similar to like um, uh, the comic book part of superheroes, <laughs> where they're always you know, trying to hide their identity under glasses and a bad hat, uh, simply to protect the people around them. And uh, with the... Um, uh, situation with my family and stuff, and it's uh, somewhat reduced now, so uh, there's no longer any need for that paranoia. Plus, uh, Igor has gotten a little bit over his paranoia, moved around a bunch, and he thinks <laughs> that the people chasing him have lost sight of him. <laughs> so we're good. Well, I'm so glad. We have so much uh, room to cover today. I like to jump into things because we have two hours of great information. First of all, this weather. This weather, people called it global warming. Now they're calling it global change. Extreme summers, extreme winters, we're breaking records in the winter. What's going on? Uh, this is, uh, from my opinion, uh, a necessary side effect of the expansion of the planet. And it occurs because of several different uh, phenomena that all contribute. So you can imagine that the sun is out there pumping out electricity at uh, frequencies we're unaware of, and it goes zipping right through ourselves and through the planet, and it gets captured by the um, plasma ball that's in the middle of the Earth. It's not a uh, chunk of iron uh, molten or not spinning around. As it, this is occurring, we get a magnetic field effect as these particles come zipping through our magnetic uh, magnetosphere, and we also get this uh, charging effect at the upper levels of the atmosphere, the, both of which are not really discussed for the effects that they are. So the uh, jet stream and stuff is shifted around by the sudden electrification of these outer uh, layers of the ionosphere, uh, where we're basically dealing with hydrogen and other ions that have been captured by our electrical magnetism. As the magnetism warps and changes, it's no longer spherical. We get a push down here, a rise up there. Plus, we've got all these bastards out there with harp that are heating up the atmosphere on the underside, trying to punch it up this way and do other things to it. So, of course, we have instability. The instability uh, is within a self-correcting system. So whether they intended it to, to do this or not, 
it is my thought that the net effect will be that the system will correct itself by an ice age because that is a uh, level of uh, finality of correction that the Earth has always been able to achieve balance in the past. With previous civilizations that may have gotten out of hand, it would basically would every so often dump an ice age on you. And I think we're heading into that. In fact, we're into it already uh, at the very early stage. And maybe 2017, 2018, we'll have just a really horrific year. And I think the global consciousness then will be, yep, you know, uh, let's get get moving. Something seriously is altered. Is this something that we can predict? I mean, we, we can see ice core samples and look in the to the past. Can we actually predict this? Or is this something that we have created because of our human problems? Uh, boy, that's a complicated answer. And yes and yes is the response. Yes, you can predict this because there are normal cycles, 100,000-year cycle for ice ages, or it's actually 102,000, I think, at its maximum. Uh, there's a 68,000-year cycle, 64-million-year cycle, etc. And all these cycles, we're in a conjunction where a number of them are coinciding at the same time. Uh, but also, this is a function of consciousness, not um, so, yes, humans are causing this, but not because we're driving our cars around. I actually don't think cars are a good thing because they're consuming our atmosphere at a horrific rate. Uh, just as an aside, every time you're sitting there idling for each minute, I believe it's uh, the equivalent of you and 820 horses sucking air and producing carbon dioxide. And the uh, sucking of the air is the nasty part because you're destroying oxygen that we might want to breathe in the future. But... Um, the, the issue is that consciousness is reacting to the um, outward spread of thought from within consciousness. We know from uh, uh, mundane science experiments uh, that were conducted ad hoc by people like um, Art Bell on uh, Coast to Coast, mm -hmm. that if you get enough people concentrating on something, you can achieve an effect. Now, you get a few million people concentrating and they can push a hurricane a few miles offshore, that sort of thing. Uh, also, if you get enough people agitated and irritated and uh, zapped by radiation and you've got mind control going on and you've got um, uh, the money going bad and pressure from all sides on them, you're going to get people themselves to be at a very conscious level, uh, jittery, anxious, and so on and so on. And this, uh, these waves of that kind of consciousness spread out within the realm of consciousness and we're getting that feedback. And so the, the system, as I say, is self-correcting. And it is no accident of the universe that you and I and everyone on the planet at the moment are the remnants uh, of the third civilization of humans and that the previous three civilizations were wiped out. Or they did not wipe themselves out in a um, uh, subconscious reaction because the subconscious doesn't exist as, as we've been told. But uh, they did participate by getting to a stage like us where we're just agitated beyond belief because of all the different kinds of pressures, and you cannot contain that. Just as humans are all psychic and we're antenna, uh, antennae for uh, the reception of psychic impression, uh, mental activity, that kind of thing, we are also emanators of it. As you know, you walk into a room sometime or you're sitting in a restaurant, and uh, for whatever reason, all the people in the restaurant turn their heads, and you have no clue what's going on. And it, and it can be the most unprepossessing uh, or uh, uh, 
presenting kind of a fellow. And yet there's something that's, you know, an animal magnetism about him and you cannot help yourself. And it is this wave that goes through the whole uh, consciousness of all of the people sitting there. And so you see this happening all the time. We just don't really give it the credence and the uh, import that we should. You know, I think of, uh, we've been told, history, 10,000 years. We really don't know that much of the his hyphen story from before that. And I have a feeling, Cliff, that we have eradicated ourselves, or maybe the planet like a dog, it simply shakes its fleas mm. off every so often because maybe we evolve technologically more than spiritually, and it happens again and again and again. And I look at the Amazon. I look at the Amazon and the forest, and they keep cutting trees all the time, you know, mostly our lungs. And then we have the oceans. We also breathe from that. And I have a feeling that this is unsustainable. If the planet continues to grow people-wise, and we continue using the resources at the pace that we are, how can we sustain living in the next 100 years? Actually, I don't find that to be uh, the problem. <laughs> Truly, I don't. Uh, humans are the most creative things around. The, um, the problem with humans and our the appearance of unsustainability, first off, uh, there is sustainability. Even if we thought of ourselves as the fleas on the dog, bear in mind, the dog can't shed all the fleas. Mm -hmm. All right. At some point, you always end up with like that 10% residual from which the next population grows. Right. And so we can be tenacious that way. But even if we don't think of ourselves as, you know, polluting insects or uh, vermin, we can think of ourselves as being extremely creative here because previous civilizations have been able to achieve a great deal of um, uh, global peace and longevity. Our issue is that at the moment we're reaching this uh, crescendo, a threshold, and we've been oppressed in a way previous civilizations presumably were not. So it is my contention that if we didn't have the powers that be sitting on our necks all the time, didn't have the royals in existence, didn't have the churches in existence sucking all the, the creativity and life out of us, that that creative explosion that, uh, that should have accompanied population growth would have occurred and we would have solutions for all of the problems we face en masse. The solutions would be competing with each other for which was best for that particular kind of a problem. Truly, none of the problems we have are, are insurmountable. There's just a lot of them. Why are there a lot of them? Because we haven't been allowed to address them. In this country, look what happens when there's a problem called Katrina. And you get a major U.S. population center that has been destroyed. And thousands of people show up with small boats to go help rescue. What happens? Government comes and sits on their neck. Rather than saying, you know, you guys are mature adults. Don't come screaming to us if you get into problems, but have at it. You know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's chaos and there's no control. And that's what freaks governments out. And we're at that point now where the it is the control of the system, the stymied um, nature, the constipated nature of our uh, financial uh, system that dominates everything else that causes these issues. Previous cultures were not dominated by finance the way we are. If you think about uh, things like uh, Genghis Khan. Could he have accomplished what he wanted if he'd had to get debt to finance the conquering of the planet? I don't think so. You know, he just went on out and they did it, and the wealth was an after effect of that. And that's the way wealth is as opposed to debt. At the moment, we're all bound up in this debt-based system, and until it cracks and goes away, um, we have these there's a very small number of individuals sitting on our necks at critical places, uh, pinching off the life, if not sucking it out of you. And so when that goes, there's, uh, I'm been forecasting for years that because of the data sets that a renaissance is coming of an unparalleled um, 
un, un, we can't even conceive of what's going to happen here because of the uh, magnification that's going to occur because of network effect. In previous Renaissance, we had only the crudest form of network effect. So take a Renaissance that occurred in either China near at the same time or Europe. In both cases, we had uh, uh, geniuses popping up with technical solutions, the spread of new ideas, but it was a really slow spread. There was no real um, juxtaposition and, and uh, magnifying of what was going on. It took all these geniuses uh, tremendous amounts of, of their energy and time just to get together to get the new ideas to spread among themselves. Here we're in a situation where we have the Internet and the potential for network effect magnifies everything. So this is why I knew Bitcoin was going to be a success when it was in the 40 and 50 cents. It was because it had achieved a significant network effect where people were passionate and they were going to do it regardless of, of the outcome, regardless of the potential for failure. These individuals were so committed that they were going to go it, do it and they magnified each other. So I'm not worried about our problems with the atmosphere, with the planet, with pollution, with radiation. Any of this is, is uh, we can overcome all of these if we just get this debt-based monster off our back. Well, I always say, the, to me, some of the four pillars of our problems are fiat money, oil, uh, meaning that we, we don't have the ability to at least – we have so many, many brains out there creating new ways of creating renewable energy – you know, uh, over unity and so on. But somebody comes, either they're, they're subverted or destroyed. We have uh, alternative cures, and I discuss them all the time right now. They're not allowed to go out. And if they do, the person who came up with it goes to trial because we're not allowed to talk about cures here. And, uh, you know, those are some of the four pillars. What do you think? And wars, by the way. Uh, yeah, I agree. But you'll notice just the other day that uh, the tide has turned because we're getting more and more articles uh, both scholarly and from within the mainstream, that war is not the panacea for economy. Duh. <laughs> war is not good for the planet. <laughs> and it's like, oh, now that mainstream is starting to say it, there's an agenda there. So they're going to back off the war agenda on their own, I think. However, the technological explosion that we have um, uh, buried within uh, all of these creative people in the maker community who are currently suppressed by uh, lack of funding, active uh, uh, press against them, the tinge of the uh, conspiracy uh, uh, theorist kind of thing. All of those individuals will just flourish like you wouldn't believe, uh, again, once once this system starts breaking down. And we're in that breakdown phase now. So, for instance, um, uh, there's a guy on YouTube who's come up with this way of using the uh, neodymium magnets out of um, – hard drives with a couple of coils and you can make a light bulb. Well, it's like, oh, well, this is great. Uh, handmade coils. He did all of this work and it's perpetual. It just sits there and, and glows and glows and glows. And, you know, it is not of, it was more of a trinket for him or a toy, a demonstration kind of a piece in his idea about over unity free energy. But it's a perfect device for me. Why? Because I'm going to be mooring a sailboat. And by law, you've got to have a mooring light up there. And this way, I don't have to screw out batteries or any of that. I'll just make it into a nice little casing, build one myself. And, and I have free energy uh, being used on my boat to power necessary uh, vital safety gear. What and about so those, other applications that you can actually maxi maximize and magnify that effect into maybe an engine and maybe a power supply? Well, exactly so. And see, here's the first thing I, I that came across my mind when I saw that was, hmm, I wonder what happened if you would try and do this in series and what would happen if you tried to uh, do it with a uh, cross-current magnification? <laughs> and it was like, well, I haven't even gotten to there yet. But there, see, the, so this stuff's happening all over. Uh, so, for instance, we have a network effect that I've participated in. 
one of the things I did was I uh, started investigating the nature of water. Water is really cool. It should not exist as a molecule at all. In fact, it does not exist. You can't ever find a water molecule, although we drink it all the time. If you were to sit down with a magnifying glass and try and zero in on a, on a wallet water molecule, you get to the point where all of a sudden the water disappears the way a forest would disappear and you're looking at a tree, only instead of looking at a water molecule, you're looking at oxygen and hydrogen and a, and a lattice structure between them that's very loose and very weak uh, in some regards. And so water does not really exist as we think of it. And that being the case, and the actual fluid nature of water is not within these molecules, but is within this energetic lattice that keeps them all bumpily and, and, and uh, bubbly together and connected. So water does not exist as the individual atoms that we've been told with this hard bond carrying them all around. Rather, what water is, is all of these uh, energetic particles pretending to be atoms sitting around exchanging energy with each other. So water is an energetic matrix. That being the case, it dawned on me at that point when I finally got into that understanding that, well, all of those people that are out there thinking that they can do things to water magnetically or with structure or with temperature, H302? et cetera. I'm sorry? H3O2? Um, no, because we, we're not getting quite there. But but what's going on is a restructuring of water itself. Restructuring, yeah. Okay, and so uh, it's still the it's still the technically it's still H two O. You're not getting into you know any of the peroxides or any of that kind of thing. You still have just water, but what you do is you you don't concentrate on the molecules. You care about the lattice of energy that's interconnecting them, and so you can change that lattice to be beneficial to you, beneficial to some project, and so on. So I started looking into the various different ways of doing this. Came across the work of a couple of uh, geniuses that uh, had worked. Um, in the 1920s and 1930s and 40s, uh, one of whom was Victor Schauberger, right. who uh, uh, helped the uh, develop the engine for the um, uh, Nazi bell. Yeah. And his early work was all about structure of water. And so I started looking at his methods. In any event, long story, I built a device <laughs> sitting on the other side of my computer here. This device is uh, simple, crude, and so on, but it really works. It's quite effective. Very shocking because you put water through it and water expands. Literally, you pour a cup through, you get a cup uh, plus uh, about uh, 4.5%. So it expands just in the process of going through. You can put it through a couple of times and get it to expand almost 9%, but it won't go any higher than that. Interesting. But also the water, it, uh, when taken down to 39 degrees, just floods your body and every cell in your body says, yay, give me more. Just an incredible experience. And so this little device is made out of a piece of PVC pipe with some glass marbles stuck in it in a particular way that I devised. And a couple of fittings on the end so I can get water through it from a hose connection. And this fellow I happen to know who is a genius with um, uh, devices for the entertainment industry and works out of uh, Las Vegas, your, your neck of the woods. Steven Settlemeyer? Uh, no, 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 no. Okay. Uh, uh, Jerry. I won't go into his last name because he's uh, – but he's, uh, he's uh, uh, an interstellar kind of a guy. Okay. okay? Uh, hint there. Anyway, though, uh, uh, Jerry, he's mucking about with uh, 3D printers. And so what's he decide to do but, but set up a program to do 3D printing of these devices so you don't have to have the rather crude method of putting all the glass marbles together and he's using. So we've had to have this network effect of the two of us and others uh, getting together to work about the issues of, you know, the quality of the plastics or other materials involved, the cost and so on. And so we get that magnification effect. I would never would have been able to, with the limited time I've got, pursue a 3D printing solution. Yet here he is doing that. And his success may lead to an open source um, uh, 
propagation of this 3D uh, printing solution. And then there will be water modification people out there all over. And then somebody will take one of these devices and say, well, hey, we know that it makes it really good this way. What if we add that to it? And there off you go with that network effect. And so it'll, that'll come cycling back to me. And at some point, well, in fact, Jerry's already mailing me one of the devices he's he's printed out. So I've already gained from that network effect. And all I did was sit there and propagate out the information. Interesting that uh, last year I interviewed another Jerry, Dr. Jerry Pollack from the University of Washington. And uh, we did a show on structured water. And another of our guests, uh, Jeff Harvey, former Navy intelligence uh, he was exposed to radiation. He was almost dying. I didn't know this until it happened. But uh, he went to the doctor, and the doctor said, you have about two days to live. So get your acts straight, uh, your affairs uh, in place, and, you know, say goodbye. Well, he heard one of my shows that I did with uh, the one with Jerry Pollack, and uh, Dr. Pollack said that he was working on a, you know, with a, in a, in a uh, testing with this new H3O2. It's not new, but it's what we find, I believe, in some of our vegetables and fruit. And they were testing it on people who were sick. And he immediately called them. And he had one last spot on the test. He sent the water and saved his life. So this, there's so much to this. What molecular change do you think you've accomplished in the water that you have created or changed? Uh, actually, what I, what I believe has occurred from my uh, level of uh, microscopic examination and the physical examination of the water as it goes through in various different devices, including uh, potentiometers, etc. I believe what's occurred is that instead of having simply a, a, a tetrahedronal form of a lattice, we're now working more closely toward Buckminster Fuller's idea of um, uh, interlinked comprehensive tetrahedrons. So in other words, you can think of the H2, uh, H2O molecule as basically a little tiny tetrahedronal pyramid in terms of its lattice between itself. And they are at, at room temperature and uh, under current conditions of being used water, so to speak. The lattice, the energy has, has fallen away from it. And so the tetrahedrons are not as interconnected as they should be. And you actually get a more fluid water, more um, uh, penetration of the water if you were to use it for uh, washing. If you use it for cooking, you get a marvelous set of effects from it. And I believe what's going on is that another layer of tetrahedrons has joined, uh, or they're all, all interjoining, uh, at various layers, but also off of the, off of the, um, the point of the oxygen molecule. So, so basically what we're doing is we're magnifying the water effect. Instead of just having it at this level, we're also having it down here and then in a vertical or diagonal. What's interesting about this is they've recently um, given a prize to a, an Austrian fellow who came up with a way of doing this magnetically. No moving parts in his device. When they use his device to make beer, wine, uh, bread, anything, you get an increase in production with uh, volume with no increase in materials. The increase in production in bread is 12%. That's why he got the, got the medal was because base of the, the social medal in Austria – because basically, he's given these guys 12% additional bread for no additional input of material. And in fact, it makes a better bread that lasts longer with far less spoilage by using his magnetically treated, newly structured water. Now, he is trying for the, the H3O2 approach, right? Uh, um, I believe because of the ionic uh, output that he gets. The structured water I'm dealing with is strictly using gravity and a Victor Schauberger natural effect kind of a thing to achieve a water more closely 
uh, aligned with our with our biology for some biohacking I'm doing. And um, you know, when I think of this, the bread, for example, I presume he's not using glyphosates. Exactly. Because glyphosate, as you know, is what you know. I went to Europe a couple of months ago, and I ate bread, I ate pasta every single day. I did not gain an ounce. I come back to the United States. I have a piece of bread next next day. I'm two pounds heavier. What what's up with that? Well, it it has to do with the um, uh, actually at one level it has to do with um, the way the U.S. is growing the wheat for Roundup yep. and the inert ingredient loads that are being carried along with the wheat. So we have to imagine a level of matter that is uh, classified as inert goes into our food products. And in each and every one of the cases of the products themselves, the add-ons, the, they have some justification. You know, they use a particular product to dampen foaming in bread and the, and the product itself is inert. However, in some cases, by the time the products that you actually consume reach you, they have 4,000 of these inert ingredients that have been in the process of making that particular whatever it is. And it is the accumulation, the, um, uh, aggregation of all of these inert ingredients being carried along and dumped into you uh, that causes the dysfunction that leads to the inability to deal with the wheat itself and in our particular society. So if you'll notice, uh, in, in Italy and in, in France and Germany, they don't harvest wheat the way we do. Around here, we harvest it by getting it to a certain stage and then dumping all these chemicals on it to kill everything in sight so that we, quote, reduce the, the processing costs. They're happy to pick up the processing costs in Europe because they don't have this upfront load of capital and uh, soil damaging um, uh, chemicals that go on. Further, because we have the soil damaging chemicals and the reaction with all the salts we're putting into the environment, as well as all the pollution we've got here, our particular um, uh, food sources, our food body has been polluted. And we're picking that up and taking it in with us. So um, we can see ourselves as energetic bodies. We know that we don't really exist. We are, in fact, um, composed of energy that winks in and out of existence 22 trillion times a second. And when we do this and think of ourselves this way, we can think of our body in a uh, slightly different fashion in terms of how we manage it. And it actually, if you think of your body as a machine and that you had a machine that had a specific lifespan engineered into it, but had the capability, if you desired, to to, with good maintenance and all of this kind of thing to have that lifespan extended, we would have an entirely different approach to how we manage things. Because in the United States, our media is focused on the, on the central idea that everyone is their body. Then, then there are all kinds of things that are allowed that make no sense. If you imagine yourself the other way as a, a, a doer occupying a machine, a bio machine that you use to get around to do the stuff that you do. This can be proven, by the way. We can actually prove you are not your body with these real simple little thought experiments. And once you start opening your mind up to the idea that you are not your body, then you look at your body a different way. And you kind of think to yourself, well, I might, when I thought I was my body, indulge in that donut because I got pleasure out of it. And there was a direct connection between my pleasure and the sweet sense that was hitting me and the uh, body and my understanding of myself. But if I think of myself as a doer in the body, then I realize that when the body's sense is receiving the sweetness, 
I don't have to be overloaded by that. I don't have to be overwhelmed by it. I don't have to be subsumed nor seduced by it. And so I can say to myself, that's sweetness. That's all. It doesn't dominate me. It doesn't rule me. I need not pursue more than one bite of that. I actually met this uh, a very entertaining uh, philosopher once at an airport. And he said he'll have one drink of any kind of drink you've, you've ever got. But he never drinks more than one drink in a day. And he had all these people in the hotel bar or in the bar there. Uh, we were waiting um, trying to get him to have another drink and he, you know, offering him these exotic things and willing to pay for all this stuff. And he just wouldn't do it. And he said, you have to understand. He said at that, this was uh, when I was in my twenties and he was saying, I'm not my body. All I need is this level of experience. And then I can cogitate on that experience all day. I can recall it. I can think about it. I don't have to, to be subsumed by it nor seduced by it. And this guy actually understood what was going on. So if we think of ourselves as as machines, bio-machines that are being run by us that are inhabiting our bodies, then it becomes obvious that we can care for our bodies the way that a, a person might care for their car. And you see examples of cars that get you know millions of miles and the interior is pristine and so on because of the level of maintenance. And all it requires is, is a different understanding and thinking and about yourself. And really, it's an issue of if you understand that you have seven minds, three of which are actually available to you, and you can use them in different ways by slotting them into position at different points, uh, and you are not any of your minds, and you are separate from your minds, then the whole of reality becomes an entirely different kind of a puzzle to investigate. Because the nature or the, the purpose of reality is to teach us stuff. Right. And actually, the thing it needs to teach us, here's the whole purpose of life, by the way. This is here it is in a nutshell, and you needn't look any further. And you can just do away with religions and so forth. The whole point of, of life is to teach you what to do and what not to do. So here we are, a perfect example of what not to do. In the United States, it's not advisable to have more than one bite of bread or wheat, a product of any kind, because it's unhealthy for our body machines. Mm -hmm. In other environments, that's not the case. If you want to let yourself go into the feeling part of your reality, into that sensation part of reality, in Europe, it's safer. It's just not as safe here. And so you can have these ideas about yourself. You don't have to think of yourself as... Uh, a bulimic or as a somebody who is a, um, a Crohn's disease victim, that kind of thing, right? All of these are simply conditions of our machinery because we've been inattentive in our maintenance. And, and there are other issues. We bring over stuff from past lives in order to force us into particular ways uh, of understanding and learning. But uh, the nature of the, the beast, so to speak, is that uh, it, all it takes is a little bit of shift of your brain. To understand that you've got these three minds, one of which is your body mind, which is feeling that accommodates your four senses. And then you have uh, a desire mind, which is the power behind willpower. And then you have a feeling mind, which is where you absorb impressions and sensations and emotions and where you handle all of those. So if you find yourself in a situation where you're overwhelmed, you're sucked in, you're seduced, you're taken away by a sensation you're in feeling mind. If you find yourself in a situation where uh, you're in that restaurant, you're male, uh, you're not quite dead, and there's a flash of, you know, cleavage or legs or something, whatever it is that gets you and your eyes jump over there, that's desire mind, okay, which is inter interconnected with feeling mind and the two work together. And then there's body mind. And body mind is like your ordinary operating system. 
And you can, you can tell yourself at any time, I have control. I'm not subsumed and seduced by that cleavage. That's, that's desire mind. That's lust. I need not deal with that at the moment. I can get into body mind just like that, which takes me out of there. I'm immune to that. Same thing with feeling, et cetera. And so, Again, it goes back to the idea of the, you know, inert ingredients poisoning you and so forth. But you take those inert ingredients on because you get trapped and seduced into either desire mind or feeling mind or the combination of them. And you need to sometimes recognize when you're in those states, step back and say, oh, I don't have to do that. And by the way, I'm so glad you're talking about this because I think I've come to a conclusion lately, Cliff. I think that We grow up thinking that our DNA has a code that tells us how to behave, how much, how long to live, and so on. And I think, based on the work of somebody I interviewed recently, Dr. Ellen Langer, I don't know if you know who she is, she wrote the book Counterclockwise. In the 1970s, she gathered a group of uh, elderly, you know, people in their 70s and 80s, and put them at a location that was reminiscent to the 1950s for one week, one week only. The newspapers that were given to them every day were from the nineteen uh, uh, from the nineteen fifties. The food, the decoration, everything, TVs, TV programs, everything was nineteen fifties. They uh, determined their their uh, vitals before the uh, the project, the task started, and after. And they found out that physically, they took pictures. They uh, look younger. Their their hearing became better. Their, their eyesight became better. So imagine if one week has that effect, what we can do if on a societal basis, we could do this for everybody for a year. <laughs> everybody go back to the 50s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's a scary thought. That's also sort of a misunderstanding of what's going on. Uh, here's our problem with uh, the, our particular setup at the moment. Most people don't know what humans are. Okay. That includes all of our scientists, all of our doctors. Uh, the physicians that we have here in the, on the Western world, especially, but now since the Western world, uh, meme has, has penetrated, uh, India and China, a lot of their thinking is polluted as well. Uh, most people don't understand what it is to be human. You ask anybody, well, how many senses do we have? Well, they'll say five or six or whatever, right? Which is not true. We only have four senses. This is true of all vertebra. Uh, there's the vertebrates are about 15% of the population of life on this earth. We are an intrusion into this uh, sphere by some other entity at some point. If you want to call it, uh, what, what do the, uh, the Christian guys call it? Um, intelligent design, okay? Mm. Uh, sure, intelligent design is accurate, but it was by these aquatic beings <laughs> that came from uh, a planet near Sirius. Um, and they crafted us. And prior to that, there was just uh, invertebrate life on this planet. All of this is relatively immaterial because humanity is only using that as a human. We only use our bodies as a template. That all is all our DNA is. Most of our, uh, for instance, most of our sciences relative to what it is to be a human are not sciences at all. So psychology and psychiatry cannot define for you consciousness, nor can they define the psyche. That it would be akin to a nuclear scientist not being able to define an atom or radiation. Would you trust such a being to do anything? No. If you had a nuclear scientist who couldn't define atoms or couldn't define radiation, then they are uh, basically a witch doctor casting around for rep uh, repeatable results with any kind of spell they can come up with. 
That's my opinion of psychology and psychiatry today because they cannot define hum- humans in any at any level. They think there's such a thing as a subconscious. They have sliced and diced and created all of these words for objects that do not exist. They live in a fantasy. Humans are relatively straightforward. Uh, and we can also, by the way, dispense not only with the psychiatrists and the psychologists, but within what, but with all religions. Any religion that cannot quickly and in under 35 words define for you what a soul is, is basically uh, witchcraft. They're trying to mind control and so on. And any religion that could define soul would not be a religion. Because once you understand what your soul is, you realize it can be lost to you, but it can never, ever be saved. The concept of saving your soul is rather absurd. Let me see. The way to define a soul, by the way, it's you can look at it in one sense. It's your ticket to reincarnation as a human. And so you could lose it and not be able to reincarnate as a human or would reincarnate as a damaged human that went down a stream of damage until they became no longer able to reincarnate as a human at all. And so your soul is that ticket. The soul doesn't exist as a uh, a, sob- a solid object. It doesn't exist on the in the realm of matter, but it is with the the you part of you in all of your reincarnations. And it actually is, in another way of thinking of it, the template through which matter expresses itself as your body. Okay, in all of its ramifications, its astral body, its energy body, the physical body, etc. So your soul is the uh, mold form that's put on the extrusion machine through which matter is extruded into the body that you inhabit. And obviously, if you had no soul, you couldn't create the body, which uh, and therefore wouldn't have anything to inhabit. So the soul is somewhat of value to you, but it can't be sold to anybody, traded, given in any way bartered away from you, but it can be uh, depreciated by bad behavior in the university of life that is Earth. If you continue in bad behavior long enough through enough lives, universe is self-correcting and it will say, I don't like this anymore. You ain't going anywhere that you need to go. You've abandoned the idea of eternal progression, not evolution, but eternal progression at an individual level. And therefore, I'm casting you off and busting up your parts into all these elemental beings. Now, you have to understand, let me get a sip of water here. Well, you take the water. Where does consciousness reside? Consciousness is everywhere. Everything is conscious. Your consciousness and mine, are we linked? Not as you're implying, no. Uh, Consciousness, uh, um, my doer in my body is awake and conscious of being itself. So it has these seven minds. Let me go back to that real quick. It has the body mind, um, uh, the body brain mind you can think of. It has the desire mind. It has the feeling mind. It has a rightness mind that knows right from wrong, but only does tells, tells you so by saying, no, don't do that. In other words, your conscious, what we, uh, your conscience, what we call our conscience. It has a reason mind that can do reasoning, but it never really contacts the body mind. It works differently. But then there's these last two minds, and they're the key. It has a mind for I-ness. So I know I am me separate from every other doer on this planet. And it has a a mind for selfness. I know myself to be myself. Strange kind of words to think of, but uh, you can perform a real quick little um, 
uh, a thought experiment here to prove to yourself that you have the I, that you have all of these minds and it's relatively easy to do so. Plus, it also tells you that you are an eternal being. It's a nice little thought experiment. So uh, let's not let's make sure that no one ever tries to watch this or listen to this while they're driving right. because it might be somewhat hypnotic to do this thought experiment. Okay, yeah. but here it is, real easy. So Mel, think about uh, a definitive memory you had between age ten and eleven. Don't tell me about it, but just fix on that particular memory. It can be an accident, a happy vacation. We only want a little tiny incident, okay, that you know occurred during those ages. Then think about uh, the earliest memory you have before that uh, period of yourself in your body. What is your earliest memory of your body? Most people will be able to tell you, it, it, well, I can remember I was four years old and I discovered stairs. And that was my first memory of me and my body because I slapped my feet on those stairs and thereafter I've been in my body ever since. Okay. So I'm sure you have those two memories. You have a memory of, of yourself at age 10 or 11 experiencing something that you have a vivid memory of that just grabbed you. And then do you have a memory that goes way back that you can tell me that, yes, you have a memory and I was about such and such an age. The the memory that I could go back in time was watching the TV at six o'clock in the morning and the American anthem coming in and I'm pretending to be a a uh, you know an orchestra maestro. And how old were you? I probably was about four, maybe a okay. little bit earlier. It, there's a great contention, uh, a, a postulate. Okay, it is it is postulated that humans don't go into their bodies until they're about seven or eight. Some of us get in about three or four or five. I know myself to have had a memory that I can fix in time, and it was my first memory of myself in the in my body, and I was about three and a half years old. So I know that that I was not in my body prior to that. I have no memory of myself in my body at that uh, up to that point. Now, here's the, here's the other real shocking part of that memory. Okay, of this of this thought experiment. Think of yourself waving your arms as that maestro. You feel your eyeness and your selfness of that individual at that age still residing in you, do you not? I do, and I've never seen a maestro before that. That's the weird right. thing. Okay, now don't think about the actions. Think about yourself and how you felt at that time, okay? Then project yourself forward to that memory when you were 10 or 11, okay? Feel yourself then. Now, feel yourself at this instant. Is there any age difference between any of those no there you go you're an eternal being that lives in a body that if you mishandle it degrades but could if we knew what the hell we were doing not degrade so why is it then that society tells us that time is linear from a to z we're born we die when everything could be happening i mean like the movie interstellar it could be happening all at the same time it actually does not happen all at the same time. That's another misnomer. People are misunderstanding. People do not grasp what time is and the concept of, of this eternal progression of humans. Uh, it goes to the, the interstellar. It's like, uh, the, it doesn't happen all at once that way. The idea uh, being spread is a reduced. It's a remnant of a very old teaching. And here's what basically happened in the third uh, civilization of humanity, the one that was wiped out where we see the glazed uh, miles of green 
slightly radioactive uh, glass just below the surface in India and in Africa where there was some kind of a ray gun or whatever that took them out mm. that we think of as the Atlantean kind of civilization, right? The previous civilization had a body of knowledge that has come down to us through these um, uh, deliberately, my deliberately chosen word here, fucktards uh, that are now categorized as priests. Okay. These priests also include what we now think of as academic scientists. It is not in their interest to provide truth or exploration for truth. It is in their interest because they're bound up in an economic system that supports that interest to only stay the narrow course and not think outside the box. This is very convenient for, uh, for them because the vast majority, over 90% of them, uh, fall within a category of themselves not grasping that they are not their bodies. So they are trapped by their own thinking, can't think outside of themselves as their bodies, think that they die when their body dies, and all of these other um, follow-on aspects of that that bind their thinking and trap them in a particular kind of destiny, which they have no uh, recourse but which to propagate. They cannot see uh, outside of their um, non-sight. So, for instance, all of the doctors you approach, if you ask uh, your physician next time, uh, you know, Doc, um, double check me on this. How many senses do I we don't. have? Uh, I yeah, don't. I don't go to a doctor I, anymore. I, I don't go to doctors either. But you, you see my point. The doctor yeah. will tell you we have five senses, right? Because he doesn't realize that the senses are discrete subsystems. So your eye, you have two eyes, two nostrils, two um, taste sequence uh, uh, groupings, arrays within your taste buds, and two ears. But they each, each of these pairs form a being that is put at your um, disposal in this body for this life. So it's very much like the webcam we're using at the moment. The webcam provides all of the imagery and just dumps the imagery into the computer. The computer doesn't have to know about uh, lighting or focus or any of this crap. It just has to take the image and pass it on. So our bodies are like the computer in that sense. And, and our eyes are like the webcam. They're, our eyes are conscious. They do a lot more than simply pass light through them. Again, here's a simple thought experiment. They say, if they, if anyone tells you you have five senses, you can say that's bullshit and I can prove it very easily. The reason that we can prove this is by like sets. So there's one category that all your senses have that none of the rest of your body has. And it discreetly identifies your senses uniquely. None of them feel. Do you feel light going into your eyes? No. Do you feel smell, the contact that, that the smell gives you? No. You receive it as an impression. Do you feel the molecules hitting the taste buds that then trigger the individual taste? No. You, you receive it as an aggregate. Same thing of the, the sound coming in from your ears. You don't have to decode the vibrations and convert it into sound. You don't have to be aware of all of this. These are discrete subsystems that are conscious in and of themselves, but not conscious as themselves. And so they are subsystems that work for your body, and they are all resident in the head. In all vertebrates, that's the case it is. Now, there are some vertebrates that have more senses than us, those that live in the water and those that live in the air. Uh, they need them. But you see, society tells us that nutrition starts in the mouth. I say nutrition starts in every sense, maybe more than the six, the five senses that we supposedly have. Here, what you hear is nutrition. What you see is nutrition. That is nourishing your body and your brain. Um, but let me go back to a moment to what you said regarding the priests uh, in the past or priestesses in the past. Now they're the academics with the titles after their names, PhDs and so on. 
are they the same before we had these priests and the apt pupils of today were the the uh, people that went to mystery schools and through initiation were the ones obtaining the knowledge and now with the phd system is the new the new student if you will is that the transformation that we saw before and now once you become part of the fold this people with PhD, you're back to where we need you to be, and you don't step outside that box because we take away your tenure, we take away your grants and your financial resources. Exactly so, and you have no right to life, basically, when, when you step outside of those that are nurturing you. But there's one kind of a misunderstanding that I want to clear up. It's, it's not my opinion that the mystery schools knew shit. <laughs> okay, the mystery schools that predate our society, that our social order, are the remnants of that previous uh, civilization uh, who were crawling out of the uh, destruction of that civilization, had some small level of knowledge, but not enough to have a complete knowledge set, and therefore did not pass it on. What they had was uh, knowledge up to a certain point, and then, oops, mystery occurred here, so we got to have a mystery school to support all of this, because we don't really know what that little missing piece is in order to get at this other thing. And, oh, by the way, we can never really achieve this other thing, because somehow we're inadequate to pierce this veil of the mystery to get to that thing. Well, it's because the mystery school had a big hard stop because it was a degraded remnant of a larger teaching. And so it'll never lead anywhere. It, it only takes you so far and that's as far as it can ever go. So the idea that we should be emulating the Masons or the Egyptians or crawling around in the pyramids trying to find out what the results of these, uh, or, you know, what the origin of these mystery schools uh, were is bullshit. Absolute crap. If you want to know about the previous order of our civilization, we have uncovered it recently in a giant library of huge books called uh, Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. Exactly so. And if you look at each one of those statuettes there or statues, you'll find that they present uh, at least six aspects of a particular story. And so you can see the entire progression of the first three civilizations in that uh, statuary um uh, library, which was deliberately buried in order to protect it from incoming space crap at the end of that last third civilization. And here we've got people digging it up and thinking that, oh, well, you know, it was a theme park or something. No, not quite, guys. This was like a, a super university open to everybody, and you didn't have to have a mystery school understanding to grasp what it's telling you, because it describes the Nummo creating the templates for our bodies and doing us a great favor. You have to understand here that we are eternal beings, but our immortality, our, our eternal nature uh, does not exist independent in this materium of our soul, which allows us to create our bodies. And the Numos came along and took the various different subsystems and decided to craft vertebra and uh, the vertebrata uh, uh, kingdom. And then out of that, they were crafting us, deliberately attempting to create a, a being that could go through the rigors that are required of merging their material body and mind with the uh, non-material energetic forms that are the soul and consciousness to form this eternal being. So in other words, the Nemo weren't just fucking around. The Nemo were trying, uh, they weren't like playing with uh, model ships and toys. They were building the real thing. They were trying to build a spiritually uh, progressive being, a being capable of stepping on the same path as, as them in this idea of eternal progression. 
Uh, and that's at an individual level. So, yes, we're all connected. And when you have an enlightenment experience, you're, in fact, channeling, if you will, funneling this uh, light of intelligence that comes through this reason part of your mind that has no words and dumps all this stuff into you. And you can actually, if you get into these kind of states, reach back and get grasp the same kind of understanding that the Nomo were after when they were shooting for us. These were not, uh, these are got, these are not like Monsanto, okay? These are not beings that were trying to create a new kind of wheat. These are beings that came along and recognized the subset of the eye for what it is, the subset of the ears, the senses, knew how to put the senses together, knew how to create a feeling body, uh, knew how to have that body evolve to meet the needs and, um, stabilize for the progression of the consciousness of the doer, the self-aware consciousness that would then be able to direct it. So they were deliberately building vehicles for us. So it is a truism to say that there is as much difference between the soul of a human being and the soul of our next closest relatives materially, the great primates. There's as much difference between those as there is between our soul and the next level of souls above us, which are the Nemo, okay? And there's as much difference between their souls and that uh, level of intelligence above them as there is between us and that greater level of intelligence, what we would think of as supreme intelligence or God, okay? But it's all on a progression uh, that we are all on at an individual level, and it gets really complicated, <laughs> I mean, beyond our ability to really articulate well without hours and hours of defining of terms. But we know that the uh, remnants of the society, of the social order that came through the uh, mystery schools and the, uh, and now into academia is short sighted, has no ability to define reality as we understand it. They feel trapped as beings of body don't understand their ability, that their real nature, and as a result of which, promulgate an artificial view of reality. And that artificial view of reality, as we see, is very easily manipulated by others who know more of it. You know, I'm convinced that the Masons know more of it, they, the bankers know more of it, they probably don't know a lot more, but they know enough to manipulate the system to their ends, because you see them using all the symbols and stuff to trigger all these particular kinds of effects. But once you get to a certain level of understanding, you're immune to the symbols and you can pick them out and say, oh, hey, uh, I see what you're trying to do there. Don't. But I think you use a key word here, burying, burial. I think this has been historically known as the way to divide and conquer. Uh, you know, for example, 1993, I went to Mexico City and I was at the cathedral. I went outside and I saw a big tarp. I tell this story all the time. And I it said, do not cross. So I went inside and I found that what they were having there were a bunch of archaeologists uh, uncovering a Mayan temple under the cathedral. And I said to myself, I was a late bloomer when it comes to all this knowledge. So I said, you know, what, who, would, who would build a cathedral on top of it and why? And then I started looking into this and I found out that this is happening around the world. You know, the Library of Alexandria, burying the knowledge from the past. China, paying farmers to build on top of pyramids and make it to look like a mound, looks like a farm. So in the past, all these commonalities that we have, all these pyramids that happened probably more or less at the same time. They say that Christopher Columbus linked us around the world when, in fact, we have people coming here, the Vikings, the Chinese, and some others. So what happened to that unity that we had in the, on this planet uh, after this? You know, Columbus came along. Now we're linked. But before, we were linked. Why? Why the disconnect? 
I think it has to do with the nature of, uh, again, getting back to the idea of consciousness and those people that are trapped into their bodies. Uh, thinking that way. And so you get to the idea that the um, priests of the time, whether it was the, or the uh, power structure, uh, has an inbuilt need to continue their power structure. So it's easier for them to control the peasants in China if the peasants in China don't think that the current power structure is but a remnant of a greater power. So if you see the current power structure has not a, a clue as to how to build the thing you're you're running your plow along next to every damn day and you know they couldn't build it if they tried then your respect for that current power structure is only as far as the bullet that they can throw at you ego you, you have no inherent um uh, emotional loyalty to their their uh whims and desires you cannot be sold the idea that they have a divine right to rule you know what is the divine right of the uh, claimed by the queen uh to rule when there was an Im- incredible global uh, grid of pyramids all around the planet 12,000 years before, uh, her great, her, uh, previous ancestor, uh, got up and stumbled out of a cave, you know? So it's like, no, royals don't exist per se. Why have any respect for them at all? Other than, you know, if you need the, um, the theme park, but if you're going to do it that. Oops. That way. In- okay. Loosing you. Okay. Can you hear me now? Okay. Yeah, I was, I was, there we go. Okay, go ahead. Uh, in any event, though, so uh, my point being that the um, the, the great claim to uh, uh, divine right to rule, to uh, elitism, uh, extends only so far as they are able to say that they are at the pyramid of our civilization and we're the greatest civilization ever. If you have the idea that there's a greater anything beyond them that they don't control or funnel then why bother with them and their whole power structure crumbles? And then we get into the Renaissance and the the new burst of creativity, the truly distributed humanity, and the chaos that will erupt. A lot of people are, are uh, raised as authoritarians, uh, can't see the uh, usefulness of chaos, and are quite frightened of it. And so they will have a tendency to support the uh, divine right to rulers, uh, the elitists, uh, but those numbers are being subsumed by uh, the current population pressures as well as the planetary pressures on us. And we're going to get to that anyway. When we get to the greater depths of the planet changes, planetary changes here in 2017 and 2018, there's going to be a very large earthquake and a volcano go off. We're having volcanoes go off now. We're having a lot of earthquakes now. But what's going to happen in the late 2017 or early 2018, maybe even to mid-2018, I don't have much in the way of precision on the date, is going to be something akin to Mount Rainier going in a giant tsunami headed towards Japan. Okay, it'll the tsunami will probably uh, inundate Puget Sound region, go into Alaska, travel down the coast, probably will miss California just because of the shape of the coast. But there will be a lot of damage from the ancillary earthquakes and uh, and major, major, major damage to uh, uh, any idea of national uh, anything road system, uh, you know, grids, that kind of deal. Right. And so that if that occurs, uh, we get to a situation where the power structure then becomes in, intensely local. Under those kind of circumstances, in a background of a world going into an ice age, uh, you're going to find that the uh, universe will separate humanity into two camps, a dwindling small camp that will try and cluster around a power authority on the assumption that the power authority can somehow make them safe, and then the others who realize that they are in a greater universe and are conscious in that universe and go on out to explore it as they need to. Is the former Agenda 21? Uh, I, the agenda 21 presumes, uh, a, a, a view of the world that will not exist. 
So, so much of the, uh, planning and preparation that the powers that be are doing is for a range of environments. So you notice that agenda 21 doesn't really juxtapose very well with the giant pyramid full of seeds in the, in the cold in, in Norway, Norway. right? So the two are not really on the same page. They are. Oops. I'm losing you there. You think okay. Still here. Yeah. I'm losing you there. Why don't we stop it now again, getting close to the half an hour mark so that we can uh, save the file because maybe it's the connection or maybe it's because we're approaching a half an hour mark. You want to take a, a minute break? Let's take a break. Yeah. Okay. We, we have some kind of an internet uh, connection issue here. Yeah. All right. I'll call you right back. Okay. Okay. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission and we'll be right back.